Hello there, this is Mark Bauerlein with another conversation. Before we get to it, a word about one of our sponsors. You may have seen a recent article in InsideHigherEd.com that began, Wyoming Catholic College has a lot of unusual things about it, each enough to merit a story in itself. Wyoming Catholic is a conservative Catholic college that educates students in the great books and Catholic tradition. It also teaches horsemanship and bans cell phones on campus. I love that. And it turned down federal funding. President Glenn Arbery describes the mission this way. This college is engaged in deep ways with the agony of a culture that has lost its spiritual center. We're adventurous and poetic and deeply Catholic. He likes to cite Dostoevsky in Crime and Punishment. Low ceilings are bad for the soul. The ceilings rise at Wyoming Catholic, which is located in the foothills of the Wind River Mountains. The curriculum centers in the Western tradition. Its Catholic identity builds upon Thomas Aquinas and the magisterium of the Catholic Church and engaging with God in the wilderness. Find out more at wyomingcatholic.edu. We have with us today Matthew B. Crawford. He came out with a big book, a big hit, a few years ago called Shop Class as Soulcraft. Uh, He also wrote, more recently, The World Beyond Your Head. He has a Ph.D. in political philosophy from the University of Chicago in ancient political thought, especially. He was a physics major at UCSB, and he says in, in his book right off that he has been working on cars since the age of 15, and he currently drives a 1970 Volkswagen Carmen Ghia. I should say also that he is a senior fellow at the Institute for Advanced Study in Culture at the University of Virginia. The new book, which is just out this month, is entitled Why We Drive, Toward a Philosophy of the Open Road. Uh, It's got a great picture on the cover. Is that Route 1 on the cover? I think it is. You know, I rode my bike down Route 1 just about a month ago trying to find that spot, and I think it's um, just south of Big Sur a little ways. It's it's a great read. I I read it, you know, in a day and a half uh, yesterday. And wrote down, I'm looking forward to asking you a lot of questions. And but begin with the subtitle, you emphasize the open road. And, you know, we've got a lot of open roads in American literature and history. We've got Jack Kerouac. We've got Route 66. We've got Ken Kesey and the Merry Pranksters. Uh, and even a book that you mentioned, Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas. Did you, did you have those those echoes in your mind when you were writing? You don't, you don't spend too much time talking about the distant past. But did you have some of that uh, running through your head? Uh, not explicitly. I mean, I think as Americans, we all have a little bit of that running in the back of our head, the kind of open road as being somehow, I don't know, important to our uh, image of ourselves as there always being this possibility of striking out for the territories, um, you know, and uh, so... So, so there's that. I didn't like canvas all that all that literature that you mentioned, but I did find uh, some good use for Hunter S. Thompson. There is some hilarious stuff. Indeed, indeed. Well, you, you mentioned the, the value of the open road, and I'm going to read a, a few sentences from the prelude in the book that suggest you feel the whole open road vision is in jeopardy. Today, I'm going to say that when you when you you talk about when you're driving and, and you sort of end up in a place where you're not sure where where you're exactly going and things seem open ahead of you, these experiences of serendipity and faith feel a bit scarce in contemporary culture, and the language we use for articulating them seems to be fading from common use. We have a vision of the future in which there would be little scope. 
for such moments. The most authoritative voices in commerce and technology express a determination to eliminate contingency from life as much as possible and replace it with machine-generated certainty. That's what automation does, whatever else it may accomplish. Suddenly, it is in the realm of mobility that this vision is being expressed. Suddenly, driving is a topic that cries out for critical humanistic inquiry. That's a, that's a lyrical, evocative final paragraph in, in the prelude. Are, 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 we, are we heading away from that experience that you want to evoke in, in driving? Is this happening widespread? Well, I think, I mean, I, I take up the, the push for driverless cars as one instance of a wider shift in our relationship to the physical world in which the demands of competence give way to a promise of safety and convenience. So the skilled practitioner becomes um, a passive beneficiary of something more systemic, which renders his skill obsolete. And I mean, you see this all over. In, in this particular context, the refrain is that human beings are terrible drivers. And I mean, you can detect a sort of anti-humanism um, behind a lot of this, this kind of a very low regard for human capacities. Matthew, at one point you say that cars have become really, quote, boring to drive, really boring. How, how, how have cars become more boring? Well, there's a number of, of elements. The, the first thing is that they became a lot more heavy you know, sometime in the 1990s. So the weight of just the, the Honda Accord, to take a typical example, went from, uh, I don't have the numbers in front of me, but it was roughly, you know, maybe 2,500 pounds, 2,300 pounds to about 3,800 pounds. In other words, it's, it's like a fully a third again is heavy. Um, so there's that. There's there was this design um, principle of sort of maximum insulation from the road, which you know has always been an ideal in luxury cars, but it kind of trickled down uh, to inform Maker's entire model line. And then of course you have uh, automatic transmission, which means you're not quite doing as much, you're not as in involved. You have things like cruise control, which partially automate the, the tasks of, um, of driving. And the result is, because of all this lack of involvement, is that you're bored out of your mind. And so then comes along the smartphone. So now we had something to keep boredom at bay um, while driving, and it proved irresistible. And this irresistibility became the basis of a whole business model in Silicon Valley, namely, um, you know, harvesting our attention uh, for their gain. Um, so now Silicon Valley is going to try to solve the problem of distracted driving that they helped to create by taking us out of the driver's seat entirely. So there's a kind of, um, you know, there's a kind of coherence to the to this trajectory. And if if we come out of the driver's seat entirely, if all the work is being done for us, we will spend more time on the screen. Is this why, as you say, Google is investing so heavily in cars? 
Well, you have to wonder <clears throat> why, yeah, why are they suddenly so interested in driving? Well, what is Google? It is the world's largest advertising firm. And someone in a car, there's a couple of elements to this. One is that um, someone strapped into a car is basically a captive audience. And further, your movements through the world uh, are one of the most important and more, most valuable kinds of data about you. Um, from someone's movements, movements through the world, you can infer all kinds of stuff. So, you know, and all that data gets entered into um, basically prediction products. Um, to it, The data is used to predict your future behavior and target you with ads. So I think we have to understand the push for driverless cars as uh, as an element of surveillance capitalism and as an attempt to sort of ferret out one of those few uh, remaining space, you know, times of private headspace, namely your commute, and kind of turn it to uh, turn it to uh, the purposes of commerce. Matthew, I hadn't thought about this, but as soon as you say this, I think, well, of course, if they track where you're going, they can feed that they can stream customized ads, they can predict your habits. Uh, I mean, there there is yeah, there's tremendous potential in, in just your geographical movements. Uh, so uh, yes, of, of, of course, of, of course. And it makes me, you know, so we should, we should actually turn off our phones. And, but, but then of course, if we turn off our phones, we won't have our GPS at work, so we won't know where we're supposed to go, right? Yeah, so we're sort of tipped ever further into dependence on this cartel of tech firms. And, you know, part of this driverless future picture is the smart city. They're very, you know, tightly connected. So the idea is that everything in the city, um, everything from trash collection to the allocation of scarce um, street capacity to police and fire, um, deliveries, all this would be orchestrated by an urban operating system, as it's been called. Um, so, you know, and you can bet that Google would make the trains run on time, right? Uh, but but what is the price? The price is having some control over the, inst the institutions that we have to live inside, right? Because there's there's no democratic element in any of this. It's sort of pure technocratic um, administration. So that's that's to put the to put it mildly, a bit in tension with our liberal political traditions. Uh, in, again, in, indeed. Now you say on page seventy one, you you say that actually working on old cars is not just for the fun of it, but it really is, in effect, a resistance to a lot of these trends toward automation, toward standardization, rationalization of everything. Working on old cars, how so? Well, there's a, <clears throat> excuse me, a kind of forced obsolescence of old cars uh, long before their real service life is, is over with. So you see this in things like cash for clunkers programs, where, <clears throat> you know, this started in the 90s, so it's a push to get old cars off the roads. And the uh, what you're told is that 
old cars are gross polluters. You'll hear it said that, you know, the oldest 10% of cars, you know, emit half the emissions or something like that. And so this began in the 90s. And in the book, I go in pretty deep dive into the, the facts of the matter um, and find these claims to be largely bogus. The whole initiative was started by Unical. And it's, it's actually interesting historically because Unical was facing the need to um, make some expensive retrofits to their refineries in the LA area. Um, and what they tried as a kind of PR gambit is, well, let's let's get rid of some old cars. Um, this was before there was such a thing as trading in carbon offsets. This was actually the episode that created that market. In other words, the idea that emissions are fungible. So instead of cleaning up your own smokestack emissions, you go and destroy a bunch of old cars. And of course, these were rust-free Southern California, you know, really nice cars. On top of that, there's also a kind of suburban politics of of anti-junk ordinances. You know, so the the guy who's got a, a parts car or two parked out back, you know, the city will say, you can't have that. You're operating an illegal junkyard, you know, as though it's a for-profit thing. So, and of course, partly this gets energized by a kind of green moralism, right? We want to be tidy. It's really more of an aesthetic thing than any genuine environmental um, concern. Because again, this is forcing the obsolescence of perfectly serviceable cars. Right, right. Uh, let me ask you a personal question. Why do you like old Volkswagens so much? Well, it's just, you know, an accident of my own history. I started working at a Porsche shop when I was 15. And my first car was a VW Bug. And, uh, you know, so VWs are kind of the poor man's Porsche. And then I had a mentor when I was in high school who was a, a VW mechanic, you know, building race motors. And he was this deeply countercultural guy, you know, super alienated. But the one thing he truly cared about was motors. And it was, you know, as a, I guess at that point, it was about 17. It was very instructive to see someone with such a jauntist view of society, but who nonetheless cared deeply about something and exemplified this spirit of craftsmanship, namely, um, you know, love, I think is what that is, um, and in wanting to... Um, do things right. You are. You have a Carmen Ghia now. And I, I remember. I remember Carmen. The Carmen Ghia was when I was in high school in, in the mid seventies. Any guy who drove a Carmen Ghia that that was a cool car to to have. It was it was it was kind of exotic, but in in a, in a cool guy kind kind of way. I I grew up learning to drive on on my my mother had a had a VW Beetle. You know, a little older, 73, 74. VW and I and I grew up learning to drive a stick uh, with, with that with that car and it was a great car and it was simple right the air cooled engine it it had that it had that particular that that fan sound right it was different from all the other engines and I, you know I I don't know those cars are I don't know what those cars are worth are worth now but well you can still pick them up pretty cheap 
Um, of course, they're rusted to hell. I've I've spent the last ten years restoring a beetle, and basically the bottom twelve inches of the car was was nothing but rust. So this has entailed cutting out sheet metal and welding in new sheet metal. Um, but it's um, it's just got about another six months to go, and it's not a it's not really a restoration. It's it's radically modified. So this car will be um, very very fast <laughs> well, what, wasn't, wasn't, you know one of the things the vw was known for was it could float right it floated if, if it got into water um but okay okay now one thing you say about automation is while it has a de-skilling that's your term de-skilling effect on the driver it does entail what you call a moral re-education People start that they have to undergo a whole different, a whole different set of ethics when when automation kicks in. What do you mean by that? Well, let me maybe back up a little bit uh, and just begin with an anecdote. So there was a a Google car that came to an intersection, you know, a self-driving car, um, and and this was a four-way stop. And so it came to a stop and then waited for the other drivers to come to a stop so that it could then proceed through the intersection, right? Because it's, it's following rules. But of course, that's not what human beings do at a four-way stop, right? They, they may just kind of roll through. There's ambiguous cases of right-of-way, who got there first? So you make eye contact, maybe somebody waves the other person through. There's almost a kind of body language of, of driving and we manage to work things out, right, on, on the fly, it's somewhat improvisational. And what you're seeing is a picture of cooperation. Now, it's interesting. So the chief Google engineer, he, you know, after the Google car just melts down at the intersection with paralysis, he says that the lesson he learned is that human beings need to be less idiotic, now, what he meant is, is that they need to act more like robots. And that's a conclusion that comes very easily if you regard the mind as basically an inferior version of a computer. And so he was just completely oblivious to the, the social intelligence on display at an intersection because that's a form of intelligence that um, just can't be replicated with machine logic. And, you know, of course, the, the other possible conclusion is that you need to convince humans that they need to get out of the way and just accept that they're going to be passengers and to sort of step out, step out of the way gracefully. Because, in fact, machine intelligence and human intelligence, um, the prospects for their sharing the road gracefully are very dim. This is something that emerges with real force from the, um, it's called the human factors literature in, in engineering. So you can see there's a kind of totalizing logic to driverless cars. We have to all be driving them or they're really not gonna do very well. And that, that just kind of heightens the feel of, you know, there's this colonizing force that um, is gonna tip us further into dependence because of course, the more we, except automation, the more there's an atrophy of our skills. 
so the space for intelligent human action is sort of gets collapsed or eroded, um, leading to demands for further automation because, in fact, you know, we become less competent. This is I think this is another important insight to, to take away here. The all or nothing, the totalizing drift of automation. Everyone has to be automated. If everyone isn't on board, then it's just, it's just not going to work is that there'll, there'll be there'll be kinks in the in the system and we got to fix those. Yeah, because the the great promise of driverless cars and it's a real promise is um, sort of the elimination of traffic jams and greater safety. But that's only possible if you have kind of total coordination of all these driverless cars and you can't have sort of rogue dissidents, you know, running around um, sort of putting a wrench in the works. This leads to uh, another section of the book under you're playing off an essay by William James, but you call it the motor equivalent of war, which gets us over into the two wheeled uh, vehicle. What is the motor equivalent of war? Well, yeah. So William James wrote this famous essay, the moral equivalent of war. And in it, he's um, he's making a case that we need to preserve the qualities of courage, toughness, hardness in times of peace, because he he worried that an atrophy of these parts of the soul, if you will, um, would kind of make us uh, contemptible. I mean, he's he's kind of swimming in the same currents as Nietzsche with his critique of the last man, you know, someone who's just devoted to his own comfort and safety. You can think of Teddy Roosevelt with his, you know, talking about the mollycoddles proliferating. In France, you had Henri Bergson talking about uh, élan vital, the vital spirit as the crucial thing that needed to be kept alive. So there's this whole vitalist tradition that James was sort of... um, part of, at least in that essay. So in my chapter in the book, The Motor Equivalent of War, I'm describing various motorsport scenes where, you know, people are are hanging it out on the very edge. Um, I mean, driving can be taken to a really an incredible level of skill. And it's impressive to watch. Um, But clearly, the the sort of energies on display are not those of um, (laughs) safety. Right. I mean, they take safety very seriously. I, I, should, I should tell our listeners that your participation in in some of these, your observation of them as well, but your participation is intense in, in the book. You've got some detailed uh, physical descriptions of the experience of, of, of being being in, in this kind of setting. Yeah. So I describe um, I was actually a, a passenger in a drift car. So. Most of your listeners probably don't know what drifting is. It's it's a form of motorsport where you go around corners sideways. If you can picture a an, a really excellent movie car chase scene, that'll give you the basic idea. And and so you have a bunch of cars, not a bunch, maybe two or three cars drifting in tandem. So they'll be going around a corner just a few feet apart. You know, tires spinning, there's smoke just billowing out. It's really a form of dance, I think, more than anything. And uh, I just found it strikingly beautiful to watch. 
and then I got to ride in one of these cars and, um, you know, there was one sequence of corners that the driver, Forrest Wang was his name, young guy, that he executed with this kind of liquidity that had me moaning in my helmet. It was a just a, a moment of pure aesthetic rapture, really. Uh, 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 another uh, uh, related event uh, you talk about, my brother and I loved when we were kids, the demolition derby. What, what, what was so, what's so great for boys about the demolition derby or, or for, or for grownups? Uh, destroying stuff. I, I think it's just a pure Dionysian, you know, delight in, in violence, really. Uh, you know, so <laughs> that's, that episode in the book, I guess, is sort of um, calculated to, uh, you know, provoke, <laughs> provoke the, uh, the safetyists to, to the greatest degree. Because you know, it's such an interesting scene sociologically. Um, the day before the demolition derby, and, and this is in this uh, Warren County Fair in Virginia, uh, you know, small town thing. So the day before they had um, something called the Power Wheels Derby. I didn't even know what that was going to be, but I showed up a day early because I thought it had to be something awesome. <laughs> I thought maybe monster trucks or something. But what it was, in fact, was these l little um, plastic toy cars electric toy cars driven by toddlers and here you have the parents saying things like ram that car ram that car and it was the opposite of the kind of child rearing you see in the polite uh, liberal precincts where it's all about don't hit take turns you know everyone gets a prize this was like the redneck school of child rearing <laughs> and uh i don't know there was just something a little bit refreshing about it they're getting initiated into this sort of Appalachian ethic of animosity. Uh, so I, I'm not commending. I'm not commending this, but uh, it was it was great to see the sort of the polar opposite to that. You talk about as quote the bicycle moralist. What is the bicycle moralist? Oh, you know the whole scene of. Uh, <clears throat> You know, you go in a major city, you see the bicyclists, you see the electric scooter gliders about uh, the sort of carbon teetotalers. And um, there is a kind of, um, you know, moral superiority there that goes with, with the bicycle understood as a kind of pointed, you know, political statement against you know, sort of a demonstration of your virtue as a, you know, someone reducing your carbon footprint. Um, I enjoy bicycles as the next, as much as the next person. I, I ride one just about every day, but it never occurred to me to sort of make it a badge of, of political identity. And this really got driven home for me. There was during the yellow vest protests in Paris, which when they were really at their height, there was a photo in the New York Times of some, one of these protesters has lit a bicycle on fire. Now, no one remarked on this, but I took it as a sort of a witty bit of trolling against the sort of the ruling class and their self-image. Because the yellow vest really, it begins as an automotive protest. Uh, they're protesting a reduction in speed limits and uh, an extra fuel tax. So it really kind of heightened the, the class divide where, you know, the 
the sort of Macron's electoral base in Paris, you know, they ride the metro. Um, these are people in finance and media and academia. And for them, environmental virtue is one of their titles to rule. I just want to mention here that, that, that Matthew, you, you've, been, you've been cited several times for going 20, 30 miles over the speed limit on your, on your motorcycle. And I, I'm, I'm asking, you've been, you've been in court. You, you describe this quite, quite extensively in the book. Now, Matthew, are you going to slow down or not? My natural tendency is to ride according to the sort of speed dictated by the natural features of the road, the weather, the traffic conditions, my own state, uh, how much visibility there is. Um, so one thing you need to understand about speed limits um, when they do studies uh, about this, if you reduce the speed limit, say 15 miles an hour from what it was, p people's actual speeds re reduce by about one to two miles per hour. That's the 85th percentile, meaning 85% meaning of drivers are only reducing by that amount. Because in, in fact, our, our, the speed we drive is not very sensitive to the limit. So often what you have is speed limits set um, artificially low. And what that does is it creates a, um, a gap between our natural reasonableness and the rules. And it's in that gap that you can generate revenue, right? So you're now collecting rents from perfectly reasonable behavior. Your numbers in the book on the amount of revenue collected in, in Chicago and in Washington, D.C., for instance, from the red light cameras, th those are big numbers. They're doing well. Yeah, yeah. So um, in D.C. for fiscal year 2016, which was the latest when I was writing that, it was over $100 million um, from red light cameras. <clears throat> And uh, there's been some fantastic investigative journalism done on this, both in D.C. and in Chicago. The Chicago Tribune had a deeply reported whole series of pieces. And so here's, here's what you need to know about red light cameras. Well, first of all, at, a, at an intersection, <clears throat> the length of the yellow light is really key. So uh, traffic engineers called that the amber time. And if you, redu if you increase the amber time from, say, just three to three and a half seconds, it has a big effect on the accident rate. Um, accident rate is very sensitive to this. And so you can make an intersection safer with that little adjustment. And, of course, doing that is free. Now, in every city it's been investigated in, when the red light cameras go up, they reduce the amber time. Uh, in other words, they're making the intersections more dangerous for the sake of getting more revenue. Uh, in, and so, in any case, the, the, and also in DC, like which intersections are they putting these red light cameras up in? Well, it's not those that were prone to accidents, it's intersections that had the greatest flow so in other words, the, the greatest potential for revenue. And now once you point out to the city that these 
red light cameras are actually making the intersections more dangerous, um, they don't want to talk about it because they're now hooked on that revenue. I mean, we're talking about hundreds of millions of dollars. And if you criticize it, sort of the, what do they talk about? They talk about safety, you know, quite perversely now. There's a kind of ideology of safety that's used to deflect criticism. Yeah, there are other tricks uh, that are used. So the George Washington Parkway in D.C. is a notorious speed trap. And one reason it's so effective as a speed trap is that the lanes are built to a 55 mile an hour standard. There are standards for lane width that correspond to the speed limits. But the posted speed limit is 45. So once again, a mismatch between our natural reasonableness and the rules. And that's sort of, it's in that gap that officialdom feeds, if you, if you want to put it that way. I, I actually I live right off the, the parkway down in uh, down in Alexandria. Um, so yeah, I know I know what you're saying. Um, last question. Uh, my son is 15. He wants to go to work this summer because he wants to get a car, and and the car he's settled on is a 1979 Camaro. <laughs> it's a that's an exotic taste. So this is uh, what should I tell him? Should I support this or no? You know, if the the prudent, safe parent would say no, get a Volvo, a recent model Volvo. You know, safety, safety, safety. And you know, I'm sympathetic to that. I have kids myself. You don't want your kid breaking down and uh, you know, being at the mercy of of strangers, but. On the other hand, breaking down and having to throw myself at the mercy of strangers, you know, knock on a door to use a telephone. You know, I grew up before there were cell phones. It is a kind of, I mean, you're 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 forced to um, kind of address strangers. Um, you're kind of throwing yourself into the world with with hope, and that gets to what we started with in this conversation about the value of uh, the unlooked for, the serendipitous, um, kind of not having the situation fully under control. And I guess we're talking, we're almost veering into theological ideas here. This, you know, the pursuit of mastery, complete mastery would, would entail complete safety. And sort of this sort of sovereign self would be never disturbed by anything outside its its own agenda. And personally, I think a kid breaking down and having to sort it out and figure it out for himself is there's a certain amount of value in that. And so, yeah, get the Camaro. <laughs> Can we hit on one one more um, topic briefly? Absolutely. So we've talked about safety. I think. Um, there's this weird feedback loop where the safer we become, the more intolerable any remaining risk appears is at the level of sensibility. And I think that ties into the automation imperative. We accept uh, de-skilling and automation. And that, that program always points to the least competent among us to justify uh, its standards. Um, to justify or removing the human being from the equation. But I think this leads to a, 
an unrealistically low uh, low view of human capacities. And so you have a kind of infantilization that slips in. And I guess if there's an animating spirit of this book, Why We Drive, it's that democracy requires a presumption of individual competence because that's really what social trust is built on being able to um, extend to one another a presumption of of competence so i I see that kind of creeping infantilization as really uh, kind of working its way into the democratic character and eroding the capacity for self-government the book is why we drive toward a philosophy of the open road thank you matthew crawford Thanks for having me, Mark. And thank you for listening to our conversation, which has been supported by Wyoming Catholic College, which combines great books, the Catholic tradition, and the great outdoors of the American West into an extraordinary education. Go to wyomingcatholic.edu or contact the admissions office at 877-332-2930.